Uh, turn with me now, if you will, to uh, the book of Amos, and this. So we're going to read. We're going to read a longer passage this morning, but it's uh, it's uh, the logic of it is as a as a one, and it's fairly uh, fairly simple. So I'm going to read for, uh, the whole of chapter one, and then a few verses in chapter two up through verse seven of chapter two. So listen uh, to me as we read the word of God. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the tops of Carmel wither. This thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away from its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to curse, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three generations of Gaza and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to develop, to d- deliver them to Eden. But I will send a fire upon the walls of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut down the inhabitants from Ashdod, the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three generations, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity of Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of of, uh, Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces amidst shouting in the days of battle, and the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for the three generations of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kirioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound, and I will cut off the judges from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says 
the Lord. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and uh, uh, for four I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandment. Their lies lead them astray. Lies which their fathers followed but I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord uh, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of death which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same grove to defile my holy name. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. You really enjoy this series uh, right from the, the start here, day one, because um, I enjoy preaching from part, those parts of the Bible where I feel God has given me the most understanding. In other words, as my brain is tantalized by God's truth, and I can pass it along to you, it's, it's uh, really fun to preach these portions. And uh, uh, one of the reasons that I've stayed away from the book of Amos, amongst other of the minor prophets, is that uh, I've had more understand, more difficulty understanding them. But I was reading Amos, doing some thinking about that a couple months ago, and all of a sudden a whole bunch of stuff crystallized in my brain about just how this book is written and the focus of it, the thrust of it, and boy, as soon as that crystallized, I thought, oh, I've got to preach. I've got to preach on this. And so here we are today, and I hope you're as intrigued with it as, uh, as I have been in uh, uh, this, this uh, late spring and uh, early summer. And so I've got the outline for you in the, in the, uh, in the church bulletin. <clears throat> I've entitled the message, Amos Burden. I wrote, wrote, written underneath there, this series springs from my own understanding, a crystallization, if you will, of seeing the genius of the book Prophecy of Amos. The church and its impossible sin burdened Amos. Only God's Savior could help. Uh, and uh, so the book of Amos begins with this, uh, I call this the surface problem of paganism. And there are three levels of here, uh, there's the, the, the problem of paganism, which Amos starts with, and then there's a deepest, deeper problem having to do with the church in Israel. Now, I don't know whether you noticed yet, just from the reading of the, of the book so far, but it starts out, there's this, uh, there's this poetic repetition uh, for three transgressions of such and such a city, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So there are one, two, three, four, five of those uh, five of those, and then it comes to uh, Judah and Israel. And so, it, just in terms of the outward structure of the book, what you see, the, the, the genius of it is that, uh, that Amos begins this really intense sermon against sin, and he starts out with the pagans and the unbelievers, then he goes to the, the, the what we might call the, the bastards of, uh, of Israel, that is the children of Lot and their heres heretical developments. And then he goes, a third level, he goes right to Israel and Judah and deals with their sin. 
So he starts out with it, with a, and pre this preaching that God laid on his heart. He starts out talking about the people that everybody in Israel would agree about. Those outside persecutors, the nations around them that would send armed bands into Israel trying to capture uh, wealth and livestock and these kinds of things. And all the Israel, you can imagine Amos preaching this stuff and all the Israelites would say, yeah, you know, go, go get them. You know, God is going to judge them and the quicker the better. But what's, what's poignant and telling and what, what was really the burden of Amos was that he also returns to talk about Israel because as bad as paganism is and was, we see it today, um, as much as mankind would like to say that oh, these things don't really matter, that they that uh, the people are just different and we all need to get together, we all need to be diverse and accommodate ourselves, accommodate ourselves to each other and take the good from the bad in each other's uh, cultures and and uh, we'll just be we'll happily move along. As much as that's a kind of false gospel in our day, it was also a false gospel in that day. And Amos is is uh, the, the burden is laid upon his shoulders to come with a very harsh testimony, a very harsh prophecy against his own people. And tell them that their view of sin needed to be reformed. Their, their view of sin was way, much, much too superficial. And that if they understood things correctly, they would understand that they themselves were lined up, scheduled for a great punishment on themselves. And we know uh, ultimately that this punishment came in two waves. The Assyrians came first of all and plundered the northern ten tribes of Israel. Remember after after Israel, after um, the, the nation of Israel had been divided between the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin, that after that division had taken place, there had been actually a civil war in Israel. Uh, civil wars are never a sign of God's blessing. They're always indicative that God is unhappy with the people to whom the civil war comes. But uh, this fell upon Israel and uh, and so then its judgment came in two waves too. First of all, the northern ten tribes were besieged and overwhelmed by Assyria, the great nation of Assyria. And then some years later, uh, within a century, uh, the Babylonian Empire came and swept away Judah and took them into captivity in the north. So both of the whole land, north and south, were all wiped off the face of the land for 70 years. Can you imagine God being that angry with the church of Jesus Christ that he wipes out portions, portions of the church for seven years? That's what we're worried about here in the West. We, we, we take it seriously that the living God knows what's taking place and his anger and his ire will not be quenched by our talk of... of uh, <clears throat> Uh, the churches all just banding together and, and uh, all mixing up what they have and just making one big uh, uh, ice cream soda or something like that. It's not going to work that way because God has his ways. He has his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so no matter how much people get together today, 
and pretend that all truths are similar, that all truths are alike, that all truths are equatable. No matter how much we preach these things, that is not what God says, and God, God will have his way. And so one of the things that we as Christians in America and the West are worried about is that after, after this powerful reformation that took place uh, um, uh, over 500 years ago, that, that by and by these Western nations have gotten cold to the truth of God, more and more cold. Nations like Spain and Italy uh, adopted more and more pagan forms of Roman Catholicism and countries like uh, England got more and more persuaded that their aristocracy was really an aristocracy, that it was really a, a great above, and that the aristocracy didn't really need the gospel of Christ like the gospel says that they do. In America, America was founded by people that were as Puritan as you could get, puritanical in the good sense as you could get. And yet, um, beginning with uh, uh, after the Civil War and uh, after World War One, uh, Woodrow Wilson was—he was a Presbyterian president, but he was—he uh, was theologically a liberal. He did not believe in the in the Bible, and. Uh, and so, uh, unhappily, <clears throat> American political liberalism came in through the door of uh, a Presbyterian ruler, Presbyterian politician uh, here in America. And, and uh, we worry that God will be angry with us. Well, that correctly describes this time in Israel's history. Now, we know that this was not the most terrible time in Israel's history. It mentions at the very beginning that Isaiah... Uh, was the king of Judah. And Isaiah was kind of a reformed king. So, Amos' prophecy comes to Israel when they were on the upswing, but he knew prophetically by God's inspiration that they were not going to continue on with that reformation. And they were going to slip back. They were going to fall back on their own old ways. They were not going to be zealous for the ways of the Lord. And so these things would develop. <clears throat> now, um, in terms of this surface problem, let's look quickly at these different nations that he talks about here. Just look at the broad, broad uh, specter of this. And uh, uh, first of all, in, in the introduction, it speaks of uh, that, that Amos was raised up, that he was one of the sheep herders of Tekoa. And this is brought out also in Amos 7, chapter 7, verse 14. We'll do more when we get there, but there's, there are so many subtleties to Amos that are just too sweet, too poignant to pass up. The people of that day thought that they were pretty sophisticated Jews. And they had their scribes and their Pharisees, and they had their high priests, they had their Levites, the Levitical developments. They were the most literate people of the ancient world. They were, in many ways, the wisest people in the ancient world. But it was a form of secularism. They were not in love with the living God. And so... Um, <clears throat> Uh, God 
it, to, to bring them, to upgrade them, to challenge them, God brings this very basic man. He didn't bring a man from the Levitical family or a man like Isaiah. Isaiah was quite an intellectual and uh, they lived at about the same time. But in Amos, God brought a very common man. This is a man more like John the Baptist. Uh, you know, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild, uh, wild locusts and honey. Uh, Amos was not a sophisticated man. Amos was a sheep herder. Now, if you've got uh, the professorial class like we have today, we think of the seminaries. We have seminaries that are very sophisticated today. They're loaded with PhDs and THDs from Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and places like that. Well, how would they do with a, with a guy that was a shepherd who came forth to begin preaching a really hard message to them? That's what God did with Amos. We see in the very first verse, he was among the sheep herders of Tekoa. If we turn to chapter 7 for just a moment, chapter 7, verse 14, you see where it says that Amos answered and said to Amaziah, who was the, one of the kings of the northern ten tribes, uh, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. In other words, uh, that he came from better breeding. But I was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. And so with, uh, with Amos, you have a very um, fundamental man, a rough human man, a man more like the disciples, the fishermen, who were called to be with Jesus. And God said, I want this rough human man. This man has lived out in the, the pastures, out in the wild places with the sheep, tending, tending them. He hasn't been hanging around the libraries. He hasn't been hanging around the streets of Jerusalem where the more sophisticated people are. I'm bringing you Amos. And he's going to preach the word of God. And uh, he, his, his, uh, his uh, accent may not be exactly a city accent. But I'm bringing this uns unsophisticated man to you because your sins are not very sophisticated. They're very basic. And while you talk your talk and you sound your sound and you carry on and, and, uh, and enjoy yourselves in your, your high culture, I'm going to bring to you a man basically from the wild places, from the rough places of this earth. Because you need to hear a rough message. And Amos is pretty rough. Uh, we see here in, uh, in verse 7 that I just read uh, for the scripture reading, talking about uh, the people of Israel and Judah. A man and his father will go into the same girl to defile my holy name. So it speaks about incest uh, within, the, within uh, 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 the family and, uh, and how, uh, how Israel was very sophisticated in one sense, on the outside, on the surface. But underneath it all, she really had tremendous problems with sins, with sin. So God brings this Amos. And even the name Amos, if you do, if you ever pick up a book on the book, on the book of Amos, you'll find out right away that the word Amos, the name Amos stands for burden. Uh, it means burden in Hebrew. And so uh, Amos, when, he, when God called him, 
he called he, he called him he gave him a tremendous burden uh, Amos was an Israelite and yet he was bringing this tremendously damaging negative message to Israel I don't think any of us would like to have that kind of a burden on us we we, we like to be as positive as we can with each other and uh, it's hard enough to be a father or a mother and bring a negative message to your children but you think about being given this burden to bring this message for the rest of your life. That's what God did with Amos. That's what he did with Jeremiah, with some of these other prophets. It was something that they could not escape. And it was a burden. It was a heavy load. And so Amos brought this. Now, as I said, he starts out here by talking about... um, the other nations of the world that were around them. And you notice the layers here. First of all, he talks about Damascus and Syria, Syria in verses uh, 3 verses three to, uh, th- 3 to 5. Then he talks about the, the Philistines, Gaza and the Philistines, from verses 6 to, uh, 6 to 8. So these are the people that were always foreigners, that were, were never, they never had any part of Israel's past. Then after that, then he goes after the people of Edom and Ammon and Moab. And all of these people came in one one uh, fashion or another from the incest that took place in the family of Lot. Remember that when Lot was fleeing Sodom and he and his daughters were uh, there in the wilderness and um, the daughters got their father drunk. They, they were upset that they didn't have a husband. They wanted normalcy for themselves. Oh, how we cry out in our lives for normalcy, often when that normalcy involves abject sin. We cry out for normalcy. We cry out for it. We want that over righteousness. And so the girls seduced their father, both got pregnant with their father, and the children that came forth from the, those pregnancies were the fathers of Moab and uh, and, uh, and Ammon. And then before them, here uh, the prophecy condemns Edom. And we know that Edom came from Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? God said in the book of Romans, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And Esau, as, a, as a, the, the son of, of uh, Isaac, one of the sons of Isaac, Esau, was headstrong. He wanted his own thing. He, 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 he didn't want to uh, envelop himself in the love of God and the ways of God. And so he went off. He was, a, he was one of the hunters. He just kind of went his own way. And while his brother uh, Jacob listened to his father Isaac and developed inwardly and maturely and spiritually, uh, Esau was kind of doing his own thing. He was kind of like a black sheep, going off. And uh, ultimately, he just continued to spin out of control. He, as a planet in a celestial system, he kept getting his, his orbit kept getting wider and wider and wider and wider until he became a pagan. He was the father of a pagan nation himself. We see that in verse 9, 9 uh, through 10. And... Uh, yeah, there are a couple of ways that he deals with Edom there, uh, with Esau, as it became Edom. But God said he would not turn away its punishment. He said, because he pursued his brother with a sword. 
This is a um, this is a more even a more detailed description of what happened between Jacob and Esau that was brought out in the book of Genesis that we've just been dealing with in the series on the family. It shows here by God's inerrant hand that Esau picked up the sword and used the sword against his brother Jacob in ways that were tangential and around the borders of Jacob's life. So there's no um, there's no uh, story that where he attacked, but we know when Jacob came back into the land that uh, that he was very worried about his brother Esau and uh, went, made all kinds of efforts to assuage his wrath. And so, first of all, we see the the pagans, the Philistines, and the Syrians, and God indicts them for things that they've done, and then He indicts Edom. Edom came from the, the loins of Isaac, but developed in a, a reprobate way, and then Ammon and Moab. So all three, all five of these different uh, people groups, some issuing forth from the covenant line even, uh, they all, God says, I have been watching you, and I'm going to bring wrath against you for where you have deviated from my ways, and especially where you have deviated from my love. You have refused to love me as you should. And so I'm going to bring my wrath against you. And so uh, the Amos' prophecies come against these people. And in this first chapter, it's, it's lined out, it's outlined what he's going to be speaking about. But then the, mo the, the crazy thing is here, you see, is when he goes from these pagan peoples, he goes from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, he goes from these people that we would more obviously identify with as being sinful, he goes from them, and last of all, it's like he's warming up, and he zeroes in then at the end uh, of this prophecy, and he says, uh, he uses this the same phrase for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. This was just a way of speaking. It's, it's, it's totally different than we might say today, but we have expressions just like this today, we'll say to each other, we'll say, our parents will say to children, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, do not wake up before five o'clock in the morning and wake up your parents, you know? Now why, why would we say that? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. We just have these ways of speaking, these metaphorical, picturesque ways of speaking that we use in our culture. And that this was one of them that they used back then. For four, for three transgressions, and for four, and then they, the person would say whatever they were going to say. So Amos uses this phrase over and over again with these different people, and then, but then he gets down to the nub of the thing. He gets talking about Judah and uh, and Israel, and uh, and what they were doing wrong. And so uh, there's the surface problem, just like we have today with paganism, with with nations that have had nothing to do with God. And then there are there are the deeper problems. There are people that have been part of the church and then have separated themselves from it. They've they've walked away. And then we get to the church itself. Uh, why did the Old Testament church, and with all the revelation it had, with all of the help and all of the encouragement and all of the advice that it had from the prophets and from Moses, why did they need a savior? 
Why did Jesus have to come? Because there was a, a random, awful problem in, the, in its midst. Uh, Roman Catholicism tends to see the problem of sin in terms of the individual sins. You've got, you've got 12 or 20 uh, individual sins. And yes, they're a problem, but if you light enough candles and you say enough prayers and you go to purgatory for a certain number of years, you can deal with those problems. Protestantism always, always saw that behind the surface sins, the, the, the specific sins of our lives, behind that was the real problem. It was the bent of our hearts. Why didn't he choose all of these things to do wrong? It was because of the bent of our hearts. It was because of the thirst to sin in our hearts. Why would two, why would a father and a son both have uh, sex with the same woman? As it talks about here, associates that with the, the people of Israel. Why would that happen? Because our our Geiger counters, our compasses are all off. We just they are not they are not bent toward loving the living God in all of His splendor and in all of His wonders. God is absolutely wonderful. Not only does He exist, but He exists wonderfully. Every attribute of the Lord is wonderful. Every work of the Lord is wonderful. The only proper response for people like us is to see this most wonderful being in all the world and, and love that love that being and want to spend more time with that being. But here we are in the Church of Christ. And even as we are here, we know that we struggle to drive ourselves, to excite ourselves, to do our devotions, to come to church on Sunday, to be alive spiritually. Why is that? And we realize as we look within ourselves, it's because of that terrible sin that is within our hearts. And so that is what uh, Amos came to attack. And so there's the surface problem of paganism. There's a deeper problem, though, in the church on Israel. And then there's Amos' problem, uh, because Amos' problem was it was an impossible burden that he had to preach to his people and to call them to truth. Now we know that he does this, but there's no solution back in Amos' day. It wasn't, it was 600 years later that our Lord Jesus Christ came. He was the real solution to the problem. Uh, and uh, whether it's Jesus in his teaching or preaching or Jesus in his high priestly activities to make an atonement for sin for us, or whether it was his uh, his act of obedience, the right, the, his his absolute dedication to give his heavenly Father the kind of love that was that was due. I told you just a little bit ago that with a, with a God being as wonderful as He is, our most awful sin is is the first commandment, where we just do not love Him the way we should. Thou shalt love Him with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. There's no room there for taking a break or taking a day off or worshiping Him on Sunday, but then forgetting Him during the week. There's no room for that because every day then that we withhold our love from God, it shows how vicious and backward we are in terms of spiritual things. Who will save us from this body of death? Paul calls out in the New Testament, who will save us from this disposition of sin except for the Lord Jesus Christ as he applies the balm of his Holy Spirit to work upon us and to revive us 
in our lives. I was thinking back to even before I was a Christian, I used to go to church camps in upstate New York. And I remember the first time that uh, I ever did devotions all by myself. And they, they had us, they collected us for morning devotions, but then they told us, all of us, to go off, find some place that you would feel comfortable with, some porch, some tree, some piece of grass or something like that, and, and sit down and read this portion of the Bible that they had for us, and, um, and uh, we would have devotions. And I remember going off and, and, uh, it was. I was not. I wasn't. I wasn't even a Christian then. I wasn't really. I didn't really know how to do it. But uh, some of the wonder of the Lord really struck me that day, and it, uh, that started to work on me, and it, it worked on me until the Lord finally reeled me in and gave me that spiritual insight. But I'll never forget how, when I was all alone with the Bible, how there was a sense of wonder, and I could almost, I could sense the transcendence of God, even though. I didn't really know him yet, or I didn't love him yet, and that that continued on uh, through. And uh, uh, when I preach to you, part of the genesis of every sermon is fellowship with God that I have. That is just so sweet and so lovely. And uh, I, I have a burden, in the same way that Amos had a burden. I have a burden because I, I I I can see what God would have me to do. I can see the words that He would have me to say. I can I can hear the eloquence and the power of which he would have me preach both here and out in the streets of the land and that sort of thing. And yet I can't seem to reach those heights. And so as I with the efforts that I make I, I, I feel like my efforts fall so far short of the living God. What Amos was talking about here today <clears throat> uh, what having to do with his problem and our problem is that um, that we are we are so wanting, and we come to churches like this, we hear preachers like me, and we try, we make, we make an effort to get you closer to the true knowledge of God that we find in the Word, that the Holy Spirit speaks to us as we study it, and yet we know how far far short we we fall, and it's a burden because we know that God will hold us accountable. In the same way that he held Syria and Philistia and Edom and Ammon and Moab and Israel and Judah responsible in their day. And I would just call out to the children here, you, you just have to realize that as much as you understand when you come to church, there's a whole lot more that you need to understand. As much as many uh, efforts and as many energies as you you see in your life that are that are working for goodness and for righteousness and for getting closer to God. There are ten times more than that that you could exercise and energize and call into being in your own life. And so this this Christian life is a pilgrimage. It begins with regeneration where the Holy Spirit does things to your heart, your soul, and your mind to, to, to take you from uh, an unregenerate stage to a regenerate stage. But then after that, the Holy Spirit continues to work upon you. And like a hungry man might be accused of gluttony. There is no gluttony with the Holy Spirit. There is no gluttony with the things of the Lord. 
You need to, you need to uh, awaken your hunger for God and call upon him to bless you with the, the knowledge of God. And so, um, Amos, we, we begin with this, we, we see, I, I hope you see some of the beauties of how this is laid out and how uh, his attack upon these pagan nations, and that goes to the, the, the what I've called the, the bastards of Israel, the children that went, that went away from God, even though they had some knowledge of God, and then it falls upon uh, Israel and Judah. We think of Israel and Judah in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here was the very Son of God who came into their midst, and they had no apparent recognition of either their need for a Savior, or that this man who stood before them was the Savior, even Jesus Christ. How awfully stupid can you get? How illiterate, how ignorant can you get to not see the most obvious things in life? But that was his people, Israel. Now, based upon the work of Christ, he takes his spirit, the Holy Spirit of the triune God, he takes the Holy Spirit, which is, which is like a spiritual serum, and that serum goes and it enters into our lives, and it begins to work upon us, and it changes us, and it awakens us, and teaches us brand new things that we could not imagine before. And then it leads us into a life of sanctification and a life of humility. The reason why I, I can never, never, ever be self-satisfied with myself, even with a single sermon, much less the, the, uh, a, broad, a broad compartment of my life. One of the reasons I cannot be self-satisfied at all is because I see how far short I still fall before the living God. As much as much success as God has had with me, <laughs> there's there's I see so much failure in my life, and uh, that was the burden of Amos. He came to people to break in upon their normalcy, to teach them about the greatness of God. Let us close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might enjoy this series on the book of Amos. We pray that Amos might become a real, living, breathing person for us, that we might be able to smell some of the, the sheep dung and the smells of the sheep upon him as he frequents in our midst. That we might hear this rough hewn message that might awaken, awaken us to take more sin more seriously in our own lives and to flee even more seriously to Christ, to beg the Spirit to bless us, to cry out, to not offend the Spirit, uh, but rather to cry out and invite Him to take over more and more of our lives. Bless us, Christ. Bless us, Jesus. Bless us, our Heavenly Father, with blessings on high. Help us not to seek out the peace of America. And help us to seek out the peace of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.